If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. French secret agent Mathilde Carré led a life of truly heart-stopping peril, heroism and compromise. She helped form the first great Allied intelligence network of the Second World War before being betrayed and persuaded to work for the Germans. But did she truly ever abandon the Allied cause, or did she become a triple agent? Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Roland Phillips, who's just written a new book about Mathilde, answers these questions and explores the terrible moral dilemmas facing so many residents of wartime France. Roland, your new book tells the remarkable tale of the Second World War spy, Mathilde Carré, a.k.a. Victoire. Now, I wonder if you could start by telling me what drew you to this story. Um, What is it about this woman that you find so compelling? I was looking for a story. I was was in conversation uh, with a, a French person, very distinguished diplomat, and we were talking about the effects of the war in France. And he said, well, of course, you, your country and the Germans had it easy after the war because uh, one of you was in the right and one of you was in the wrong. But we in France, uh, everyone in France was horribly compromised. And that got me thinking, and I was looking for a subject who would embody uh, the compromises necessary to survive in in France. I've always been fascinated by double cross for the same sorts of reasons. So I was reading up about Operation Fortitude, uh, our very successful double cross operation to persuade the Germans that the D-Day landings would happen elsewhere other than Normandy. And I was looking at Roman Chianowski's file, who was one of the key agents involved in that, Agent Brutus. And I came across this critique 
of uh, a manuscript written by a colleague of his called Mathilde Carré. And I suddenly realized that, of course, being a woman uh, in the war was even more complex than being a man. Um, And so I started reading up about Mathilde Carré, and I realized she embodied the complexities of wartime morality through her story. How does she how does she get drawn into this world of espionage? Where, where did it all begin? She had a very sort of disjointed childhood, uh, was always longing to belong. And the outbreak of war was her moment. She became a nurse, uh, very, very brave. She was one of only three of her intake of 80 nurses to uh, remain a nurse during the catastrophic and very fast fall of France. She found herself sort of rather thrilling to danger. Um, She was part of the exodus. Her nursing station was in retreat. She was part of the exodus by which millions of French people were heading south to safety. And um, at the fall of France, uh, felt that her world was falling apart. Her marriage had ended. She'd had an affair with a uh, soldier she was nursing uh, and become pregnant by him. She then miscarried. She thought there was nothing left for her in the world. And she was in Toulouse and about to commit suicide. Uh, She was about to jump off a bridge into the river when she suddenly thought, she had a revival and thought, I will become a second Joan of Arc. I will, I will put myself, I will sacrifice myself for France instead of to be useless. And two nights later, she was in a restaurant in Toulouse when her eye caught her, she quite often caught the eye of men, and her eye was caught by a small ball of energy who turned out to, who claimed his name was something other than it, than his real name, which was Roman Chanowski, who asked her to teach him French. They quite quickly became lovers. And after a while, he said to her, I plan to set up, he was a Pole, a very brave Polish soldier, airman, intelligence officer. And he said, I have a vision of a mighty network, which will cover the whole of occupied France, intelligence network, getting information out to the Allies. But And I need a French person alongside me, and I would like that person to be you. So it was through her desire to do something for France and this strong emotional feeling that she had to to die doing something useful that led her to set up the network that became Anti-Allier, which was in, this is November 1940, they started it up, which became as our intelligence officers in this country said, our only reliable source of information about occupied France. You have to remember that uh, there were no British soldiers in France, there's no British intelligence apparatus. We were absolutely locked up behind our cliffs, awaiting uh, invasion by the Germans, and we had no way of knowing what was going on in France, except when Antarellier started up. Could you give us some examples of what this network did, what what it achieved, how it took the war to the Germans? What it did was uh, they had 
cells of spies. They had about, I think, 15 or 16. They, they divided occupied France, northern France, into 16 or 17 areas. And they had cells of spies in each area who would take down the German order of battle. They would report back how many aeroplanes there were, how long they were flying for, so that, uh, for example, uh, during the Blitz, we, we could work out where the aeroplanes that were bombing Britain were coming from by dint of their flying time um, and bomb the airfields. They were reporting from the docks on the ships in the in the docks so that we could bomb those, where the concentration of troops were so we could, as we uh, were planning for to repel the invasion, we could know what quantities of troops were coming from where. And uh, they reported on the... Um, on the armaments factories, what was being uh, um, built, manufactured where, so to guide our bombing. Basically, they they were reporting the whole order of battle, German order of battle in France. And, and what made what made her so effective as a as a spy as, as an agent? She was completely fearless. Uh, she indeed took immense risks. Uh, she so reveled in her agent life that she took immense risks. She once went to uh, Brest in Brittany to report on the accuracy of the British bombing so they could know whether they were on target or not and was so sort of moved to see the spirit of the people of Brest that she started speaking in a British accent and was picked up by the Gestapo um, as a result when she got back to Paris but managed to talk and charm her way out of that. Um, and luckily she was picked up by a half-Irish Gestapo officer so they could reminisce, about, or he could reminisce, he felt divided and could reminisce about his uh, mother and childhood. Um, so, and uh, and it was really that, and high degree of organisational skill because she had all these agents, she was the one who was going around the, post boxes where the agents would leave their reports. Uh, she would collate all the material that then had to be uh, got into as succinct a form as possible to be got to London. Um, she was highly organised, very brave and indefatigable. indefatigable. She so loved this, uh, her life and being useful that you just couldn't stop her. And there are reports of her scurrying around Paris in her. She always wore a red hat and a rather tatty black fur coat. And she would rush from postbox to postbox and agent to agent. Did being a woman, um, did this make her job more difficult or did it make it, did it sometimes facilitate her work in any way? I mean, what impact did that have on, on, the, on the network? I think that... Well, it had two effects. First of all, I think it made her less noticeable. And actually, by in early 1941, the Abwehr, the German intelligence, were not uh, fully up to, to the speed they got to later and weren't particularly um, looking for uh, fifth columnists and, until, indeed, Andrew Allier was betrayed and they realised the scale of the fifth column operations. But it made some of the men, in particular uh, the Frenchmen, so the, the network, because Roman was Polish, he brought along some of his Polish 
uh, chums to be agents, but obviously the main agents all had to be French, so as to be inconspicuous. Unfortunately, the Frenchmen were quite chauvinist, didn't like reporting to a woman, knew that the, the other head of the agency was a man, wanted to report him, but of course, for security reasons, Roman had to remain uh, anonymous or pseudonymous. And um, he was called Armand or Valenti. And so that, in that way, she suffered. But I think it helped her remain undercover uh, as regards the enemy. So the first half of her story is extraordinary enough, but then this tale becomes even more complex, thorny and heart-stopping when Victoire is betrayed to the Germans and she she now enters a real hall of mirrors. Um, can you dis- describe how she was betrayed and, and what happened to her next? The betrayal of Antoralier was purely by chance. Um, it was huge uh, by November 41, a year on. It had... It's reckoned between 150 and 250 agents at any one time. And uh, what happened, and again, perhaps this is peculiarly French, um, is that a um, the head of the network in Brittany uh, was a man, very ambitious man, called Kiefer, who, uh, who really wanted to be uh, in head office. He didn't want to be running a, a, an area, a sector. And he had had an affair with uh, one of his sub-agents, a woman called Denise Buffet. And um, so that, that was going on in the background. What really happened was that the Abwehr German intelligence were getting a lot of uh, teasing no more than that, really, for being so ineffective, not uncovering any of these uh, spies that the, the Germans had to believe were, were operating. And one day, one of the sub-sub-agents in this Brittany sector got very drunk and was sitting in a bar with a Luftwaffe officer and started asking him questions about how many planes he had, how many... Uh, how often they had to refuel, all the questions he'd been trained to ask. And the Luftwaffe officer passed this on to the local Abwehr man, who normally wouldn't have thought too much about it, would have just thought this is a a drunken Frenchman gossiping away. Uh, But when he reported that to Paris, where because they were under pressure uh, to catch some spies, they thought, well, we better send someone out to investigate this. They sent um, a a man for Paris who stopped off in Cherbourg to ask for an interpreter because he didn't speak very good French. And there was this junior policeman called Hugo Bleicher who said, I'll I'll be be your interpreter. And in talking to this drunken docker, he revealed that he reported back to Denise Buffet. They went to her house and... In her house, they found, uh, unfortunately, she'd broken all tradecraft rules and kept a list of agents, uh, amongst which was Kiefer. Uh, so Bleicher and his Abwehr boss simply waited at Cherbourg Station for the next time Kiefer came for a debrief and arrested him. And Kiefer told all 
And that was the beginning of the betrayal. The Germans had no idea at all of the scale of Antralier. They went to they then went to Paris and thought that uh, they would um, find a someone you know who was taking low level information from Cherbourg. Um, but in, and in fact, when they Kiefer led them not to Roman and Mathilde, uh, but to an underling, a Pole, who was tricked into telling them where the headquarters was. And uh, Roman and his girlfriend, who also worked in the agency, were arrested at dawn the following day. And the girlfriend gave away Mathilde. The Germans still had no idea of the scale of the operation. And the following morning, she was walking to work in the fog in Montmartre when she too was arrested. And so, and from there, the cascade of betrayal of the agents happened because, of course, she was the person who was the fulcrum for the whole network, organized the agent meetings and so on. And, um, and they, so they knew exactly from her when, it, uh, when the, the agent sector heads were next to you to meet. Um, the really shocking part of uh, her arrest is that Hugo Bleicher, but this police uh, policeman translator, was by this time put in charge of the whole operation, and he became a very notable spy hunter throughout the war. And he uh, took her back to the headquarters of the Abwehr and seduced her that first night. She absolutely... Um, it, which broke her spirit. I mean, she she felt she had to submit to this. She was completely numb, in shock, uh, submitted to this. And from then on, she was a, a broken figure um, who, although she did her best to uh, cover up, he had all the documentation and was able to round up uh, large numbers of agents. At the same time, as pretending, as seizing the wireless, the the network transmitter, to keep the network going as far as the British were concerned. So he he turned her and then turned the whole network. So what happened next? I mean, what kind of damage did she, in effect, wreak to the Allied cause while she was working for the Germans? Well, she, she was really a prisoner uh, of the Germans, uh, not, I mean, she 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 was not an unwilling prisoner in that she realised that if she didn't uh, go along with them, she'd be killed. They told her she'd be killed, so she had uh, turned. She hated uh, the life. She hated living with these Germans in the in the villa they commandeered. Um, a Roman's girlfriend was there too. They loathed each other. Uh, so she was the only other Frenchman. Uh, she, her life was spent initially for the first week after her capture, going around fulfilling her meetings that, that they knew she was going to have from her diary. And each time she had one, uh, Bleicher would be behind with a lorry load of Gestapo men to, to round up the agents. Interestingly, Quite a few of them, to, and this is where what I mean about the sort of whole 
business of France in the war and why it's it's not very it's not right that we make immediate moral judgments working for the Germans bad working for the allies good because they were offered death or imprisonment or uh, both perhaps um or turning and some of the agents after the war when they were tried said I had to get out of prison because I was uh, looking after my elderly parents, and they would have starved to death without me. So they were taking these decisions. So a number of them agreed to be turned. But uh, what Mathilde did was pretended that she was still at large and transmitting, which enabled the Germans to put out a lot of false information over her radio. That was the worst damage. Do you think always, though, at heart, her sympathies lay with the Allied cause, even when this was going on? I do. And indeed, when she had a chance to get back to the Allied cause, she seized it with both hands. And I think she felt uh, brutalised by her uh, relationship with Bleicher and by the coarseness of the Germans. And she always remembered the excitement of those early days of, of... working against the invaders of her country. And this was not what she wanted at all, to be working alongside them. So I think she was determined to find her way, uh, which she started to do after about six weeks. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We were astonished to find, alongside our hero, de Vomcourt, to find this rather bedraggled French woman uh, who'd been working for the Abwehr all along, and we we just couldn't work it out what was going on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So how did that happen? Am I right in, in saying that she ended up um, escaping the clutches of the Germans and, and, and coming to Britain. Is that is that correct? She did. It was the most extraordinary turn of events in that, uh, the, as I said earlier, the uh, Anterallié radio was really one of the very few points of contact uh, between the Allies and uh, and London. And when they when the when we had the idea of starting SOE, uh, we sent back quite early on a French soldier who'd escaped just after Dunkirk called Pierre de Vomacourt, who was an early SOE officer. And he was sent to France uh, to to get a band of resistors together, in effect. And he was, uh, his own network uh, called Auto Giro had 10,000 members. Uh, we reckoned in SOE here that he had 25,000 followers at his disposal. So this was the beginning of SOE in France. Extraordinary, vital, 
that we got it going. Uh, and in turn, it became vital that Pierre de Vomcourt had uh, an outlet to get messages back to London. And so we told him uh, that the anti-allier radio had been saved by Mathilde Carré and that he should meet her and use her as his transmitter. So he, through an intermediary, had a meeting with her and, like her, on behalf of the Abwehr, uh, couldn't believe his luck when he heard that um, that the, uh, the this new resistance uh, organisation was now about to fall into his hands. He'd already taken over the biggest intelligence network. So he said, play along with this. So she had meetings with the Corps. They were very taken with each other. Uh, and... Uh, she began to see him as her way out, but had to obviously keep uh, keep playing along with Bleicher. And the chance that turned the whole thing around, really, was that uh, she'd been told that she had to provide him with anything he wanted, and he needed fake identity cards for his people. And so she produced a lot of these, and uh, or the the Germans produced a lot of these. And when as soon as he saw them, de Vomcourt thought, this is a bit odd. These look really good. They're not the smudgy things, forgeries that we're used to. And indeed they were really good because they were they were official papers. Um and then he began to think, well, hang on, there's one or two other things I've been trying to investigate. This on behalf of the resistance, and I found it blocked uh, by German soldiers, so how did they know about that? And the penny suddenly dropped, and he said, you're working for the Germans, aren't you? So he confronted her, basically. So he confronted her, and he had to make a split-second decision, as he said afterwards. He could have killed her there and then, but then it would have been all up with him and these huge... And he was too important uh, to betray him. Or he could try and get her on side. His, his great gamble was to say, I know you're working for them uh, and you've got to work for me. And um, she immediately said, I've only ever wanted to work for the Allies... Of course, I'll work for you. And uh, in fact, that same day, they started sleeping together. Um, and um, and that was the beginning of her turning. Of course, he then had to decide, was she for real? Was she for not? Uh, the thing that everyone had decided about her in the war. He consulted with his, um, his lieutenant, who was an Englishman, remarkable man called uh, Ben Cowburn. And... Uh, another colleague of his, and they decided this was all they could do was was hope she was trustworthy, because if they would, or they could try and disappear themselves that same day, but then they wouldn't have done their their job, and um, so that uh, was his great gamble, and her brilliance because she was a very um, Emotion. She didn't hide her emotions, but she managed for the next two months uh, to persuade Bleicher 
that she was still working for him, whilst in fact uh, she was making plans with the Vomcor to escape to Britain. It was essential he got back to Britain for debriefing money, all sorts of reasons. Uh, so he had to place, Devonmacor had to place his trust in her while she had to maintain Leica's trust. So she was a double agent twice. It's extraordinary. I mean, how did they get out of the country in the end? They sent a message. So obviously, because the Germans um, were watching the messages um they they couldn't say, they could never say that she was she'd been turned back to the vomcor so they had they made plans to get him out of the country with german connivance and she then planted in the german mind that if she went with him not only could she keep an eye on him but there she'd be in the heart of the Allied intelligence and military uh, networks, so she could report back from there, and that they'd only be gone two weeks. And um, and Bleicher, who was quite naive, he hadn't been trained in intelligence, absolutely loved this idea, got permission from Berlin. To go to, he even suggested at one point she write a book while she was there called 15 Days in London. And... Um, he gave her a list of questions to ask. And so they began to plan. So they sent a message openly to London saying, uh, please send a boat to get us out of here. But of course, what they couldn't say was that she would be going too, because they'd smell a rat. So they they simply said, send a boat with, with um, and, uh, enough room for two don't ask any questions, in effect, they said. And eventually, because they had a couple of false starts, when, one where they nearly all drowned in the sea in February, eventually she arrived in London uh, on a, a March day in 1942, and we were astonished to find, alongside our hero, de Vomcourt, to find this rather bedraggled French woman uh, who'd been working for the Abwehr all along, and we we just couldn't work it out what was going on. So, what kind of reception did the British authorities give her? Very puzzled we were. Uh, Devonkor was going to by this time they were lovers, uh, and he was going to be put in a house on the edge of Kensington Gardens, a flat which they then had to delay. As soon as she arrived, they sent a message from Portsmouth saying. Uh, they can't move in yet, we better get a load of bugs in. So they bugged the walls and the telephones, which was fantastic for my research because I had all the conversations. And then they had to work out whether she was for real, whether she was still working for the Germans, whether de Vomkor himself had been turned. So they had this huge uh, jigsaw um endless debriefings of both of them separately and together. They made her tell her story several, several different times to try and see if there are inconsistencies in it. Again, marvellous for my research that all these uh, papers were, were, were written down. And at the same time, they couldn't separate her from de Vomkor because he was by this time quite in love with her and kept saying, uh, I'm not going back unless she comes with me. And they thought, we, we can't 
let her go back. So MI5, MI6, and SOE were all debating this endlessly. SOE were determined she shouldn't go back because they were worried she knew too much about their operations. Uh, MI6 thought, well, it could be quite useful to send her back if she's really working for us. So there were internal circularities as they thrashed this out over weeks and weeks. Uh, and I think it, in, Anthony Eden, who was Foreign Secretary, was very keen De Vomcourt should meet Winston Churchill, uh, who loved the whole notion of SOE, um, but then decided maybe it wouldn't be politic. And I suspect that was because of his involvement with Mathilde, who they simply didn't uh, understand. So it, it was a very complex confusing time which quite what well, she was half quite upset um at not being trusted and half she was loving because we wanted to keep her on side uh we gave her a very generous expense allowance and she loved going around london uh and dining in the smart restaurants and uh going to what nightclubs there were and so on so it was a it was a strange time for her, uh, not entirely unpleasurable, but she was feeling that now she'd started back on her road to heroism, she wasn't being given full reign. So what happened like, towards the end of the war and after the war to Mathilde? So eventually we did get, we did uh, separate her from Devon Corps. He realised his duty was to go back. So he was parachuted back. Um, uh, meanwhile, we were putting out information on the on the wireless on the transmitter to say that she uh, they were both still in London to give him time to do his work. But he was quite soon captured, and at which point the Germans got very puzzled as to whether she was betraying them or had been betrayed. Devonkor gave nothing away. Um, he was tried and sent to Kolditz. We didn't know that he'd been captured, except we didn't hear from him, so we assumed the worst. And um, at that point, or, or after a few weeks, we realised that sending out these messages pretending she was, he was still in London were useless. So we we sent out a few sort of feeler messages to work out what was whether they knew what we knew, and so on, and. Uh, in the end, decided they had to shut the wireless down. So we did that and then had a real dilemma what to do with her. We couldn't um, give her the free French uh, because she'd worked for the Germans and they would probably possibly kill her. They would certainly hate her. Uh, we couldn't send her back because she knew too much. Simply couldn't work out what to do with her. So... In the end, we took the very tough decision uh, to intern her in late 1942. Uh, we interned her in uh, Aylesbury and then Holloway prisons, and she felt bitterly betrayed. Uh, she had, after all, uh, enabled the lead man of, of the resistance to come to this country, uh, and escape arrest and could be said to have you know, helped the resistance come into being. And yet here she was locked up with a lot of pro-German spies and who hated her. And it was a very bitter three years. She wrote 
she offered to become a nurse. She offered to go to North Africa and work from for the uh, British there, but we simply couldn't allow her out. And her MI5 um, case officer, it was a remarkable man called Christopher Harmer, felt really bad and uh, went to see her a lot, wrote to her a lot, uh, as long as he was in London. And um, and that was her only real human contact. And I guess for somebody who's used to live in such a high-octane life full of thrills and spills, but being locked up essentially for three years, that must have made it even more hard to deal with. Very, very hard. She became, I think she was a difficult prisoner for sure. Um, she became very depressed. She became very ill, in fact. Um, and the French, meantime, after the uh, liberation in August 44, uh, were very keen to put their house back in order, their moral house back in order, and started demanding her back, uh, which we couldn't we couldn't send her back because by this time, Roman Chianowski had talked his way out of prison to come and work for us, though the Germans thought he was working for them, uh, as I said at the beginning, as, as Agent Brutus and Operation Fortitude. And should she have gone back and spilt the beans about him, that might have been very bad news for Operation Fortitude. So even... Uh, for the last few months of the war, the French kept demanding her back because they wanted to try her, put her, their house in order. They, the so-called purge trials had started up uh, immediately in, in 1944, um, and we didn't let her go. But as soon as the war ended, uh, she was back to France and then incarcerated for the next four years before before she came to trial. When you were writing this book, did you did you find that you warmed to her as a person? I mean, did you feel sympathy with what she went through? I think I admired her spirit, uh, her courage, um, and I felt sorry for the way she was treated. Yes, she had indeed worked for the Germans, but at the same time, she'd been extraordinarily brave on our behalf, provided us not only with a lot of very valuable information, but also, as as I was saying, uh, saved Pierre de Vomcourt and uh, enabled him to, to set up the resistance. So uh, I felt she was badly treated. I understood why she was treated the way she was, because she'd worked for Germans. But I did feel uh, a sympathy for her and admiration for her her courage and her attempts to do the right thing in, in very hard circumstances. I mean, if you were arrested, told you'd be killed unless you gave out information and worked for the enemy, what would you do? And what does this story tell you about the world of espionage in the Second World War? I mean, it, it seems like, like I mentioned before, it was a real hall of mirrors and people were required to make excruciatingly difficult judgments. It was never black or white. I mean, was that is that something you really took out of your research for the book? Yes, that uh, what I really took from is that in the world of espionage, survival also becomes a an important factor and there's a question of to how far patriotism ideology 
can carry you if your life is threatened. And if if people become spies for patriotic mo- motives, which I imagine an awful lot of them do, how far can that take you um, if your if your life is in danger? And also in how much personalities uh, come into play, even sort of when they're clear cut goals such as being allied or or Nazi, uh, how much personalities affect um, judgments others are making of you as a spy? How is Mathilde remembered in France today? I mean, is is she, is her name well known? Her name isn't well known. She was tried. She was one of tens of thousands of people tried after the war in 1949. And her trial in itself was a, a, and I, I, I feel all the trials were, with hindsight, um, sort of not exactly compromised, but um, morally complex in that they had to, that people had to be tried for their behaviour in the war, of course. But the juries, by uh, force of logic, had to be made up of resistance proper patriotic resistance people uh so there were very few fair trials and in her case uh i think it was possibly an unfair trial i mean it wasn't an unfair trial because she was tried on her two-month period of working for the germans which she couldn't there's ample evidence of she couldn't deny they had her diaries uh they knew she'd slept with bleicher which was possibly the worst crime, her worst crime in the eyes of the jury. And they, but they couldn't take into account the good things she did, um, both before and after that. So she was sentenced to death on those grounds um, that she had uh, carried out intelligence with the enemy was the charge, which was undeniable. And um, she was... Uh, just before her sentence was carried out. So we're now in late 1949 when the appetite for judicial killing had somewhat passed. Uh, she was her lawyer, who himself a resistance hero, uh, wrote a very compelling argument that her life should be spared. And it was. And um, after that, she basically retreated from life. She, While in prison, she got very, very religious and channeled all this intense emotional energy of hers into religion. She withdrew from uh, social life and, and really became a hermit. And, and in fact, it wasn't known whether it was widely thought she died in 1970. But in fact, I found her death certificate that showed she, uh, in fact, died in um, 2010. So so much had she withdrawn. Uh, she did write a book in the 50s, slightly rather self-justifyingly, uh, about her wartime exploits, which was published. There was an immensely um, wonky film made called La Chatte, which was one of her code names, where um, the not based on her, but taking her name, where this woman who works for Germans acts like a James Bond figure and starts shooting Germans up, all things she didn't do. So that she has known about, but she really faded from memory. That was Roland Phillips. His book, 
Victoire, a wartime story of resistance, collaboration and betrayal, is out now published by Vintage. You can find a link in the episode description. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow, Alex von Tunzelman will be explaining everything you need to know about the Suez Crisis. Hey.